I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Evening Standard and the Borough Press present Underground, Tales for London, District Line, Black Friars by Matthew Plampin, read by Ash Reezy. 4th of January, 1892. The President arrived in the lobby at a brisk pace, his boot heels clacking down the marble staircase. He was exactly as he'd been described, tall and uncommonly thin, about sixty years old, with a broad forehead and a silvery, scrupulously neat beard. His suit was black, cut close and worn with a frilled dress shirt, an eccentric touch that somehow increased the severity of the overall effect. The clerk at the desk, who'd been eyeing Merrill from time to time as if suspecting that he might try to pocket an inkwell, was off his stool immediately, retrieving coats and hats from a small chamber beside the doors. Merrill rose to his feet, doing his best to appear alert and useful. Uncle Bob, descending a few feet behind the president, gave him a weary look. This is James Merrill, Mr. Leyland, he said, my nephew. The clerk helped the president into a black overcoat, which was buttoned up to the neck and then handed over a spotless black topper. After fitting this carefully on his head, the president turned towards Merrill for a momentary appraisal. There was an odd blankness about his eyes, and when he spoke, his voice was devoid of interest. He dresses well. Uncle Bob accepted his own coat and shrugged it on. Dressing, he replied, Merrill can do. Before joining the National Telephone Company, Uncle Bob had been an officer of infantry, ranking somewhere in the middle, and you could see it in him now, that deep-dyed regard for hierarchy that soldiers were prone to have. Attending on this, Mr. Leyland, he was every inch the loyal lieutenant, moving aside smartly as the president made for the doors. Only then did Merrill realize that someone else had come down with them, another junior like himself. This man was older, though, 35 at least, blonde-whiskered and bordering upon portliness. I am Mr. Carlins, he said, skirting the desk to fetch a grey coat and bowler, Mr. Leyland's private secretary. Was that condescension in Mr. Carlin's expression? A shade of scorn, even? Merrill could hardly blame him if it was. His situation was plain enough, there for anyone to divine. That stale story of hapless youth, 
surrendered to an upstanding family elder for correction and supplied with an unearned career in business for which he was proving markedly ill-suited. Merrill wasn't at all proud of this. There were days, in truth, when he could scarcely bear the sight of his own reflection. The two juniors went out into the dull January evening. Uncle Bob had been summoned to Leyland's office in the city only an hour or so before to escort him back to the telephone company's premises on Temple Lane. No cab was being called, however, nor was there any sign of the grand private carriage that the president was said to keep on hand, both day and night. Merrill saw that Leyland and Uncle Bob had turned to the left and were following the crowds that tramped down towards Cannon Street. Are we not, he began, forgive me, Mr. Collins, but isn't there a... Mr. Leyland wishes to take the underground. Merrill managed to contain his disbelief, merely to nod, as an unquestioning subordinate should do. Frederick Richards Leyland was, without doubt or exception, the richest man in England. Some at the telephone company claimed that by the end of that year, he would be the richest man alive. He had millions in the bank. Carriages and country houses, a Kensington mansion in which the finest modern paintings were displayed like stamps in an album. This surprises you, Carlins observed. They started out in pursuit of their employers. Merrill watched the president's pristine topper shimmer as it passed beneath a street lamp. I haven't been with the company very long, Mr. Carlins. There is much I do not... It is true that Mr. Leyland is averse to crowds, generally speaking. The private secretary lowered his voice. Merrill sensed that he relished his position at the president's side and the insights it permitted. There are a good number who conduct their business hereabouts, whom he would not care to meet, who might well seize upon the chance to speak with him. Carlin surveyed the hundreds streaming around them. This world of men emptying out at the day's end, tramping off to stations and omnibus stands. The chances are slight, of course, but still, eyes peeled, eh? Cannon Street was broad and busy, bending away to the right. Beyond the buildings was a clipped view of St. Paul's, the half-dome almost lost in the dark, starless sky. Directly ahead, among the bright shop fronts, a steady procession of people was disappearing between a stationer's and an optician's down a tiled stairway into the underground. Merrill knew the district line with regrettable intimacy. It was an unchanging fact of his existence, ridden from Earl's Court to Temple and back again, an hour eaten out of each and every day. Routine had numbed him to the point where he didn't usually notice how it was. That evening, though, as he left the street and hurried onto the steps, he saw it as the president must surely be seeing it. The cracked and grubby tiles, the cement floor littered with flattened cigarette ends and scraps of paper, and the blasted smoke, that gritty metallic smell, tobacco and coal intermingled, hazing the air and making the subterranean ticket hall yet dingier. The president and Uncle Bob had stopped in the middle of this low-ceilinged atrium, a pair of ill-matched rocks lodged in the ceaseless flow of commuters. Uncle Bob, clearly uncomfortable, was tugging at his grizzled moustache. Leyland was taking in his surroundings with evident distaste, coughing genteelly in the muddy atmosphere. Tickets, Merrill, said Uncle Bob as if this was obvious and really should have been guessed. First class, back to Temple. Chastened, Merrill went to join the queue. Five windows were open at the office, and perhaps 200 people presently trying to pay. He could only choose a line and stand in it. 
Around him was a dense, lulling murmur, several dozen shifting conversations, their words blurring together. His thoughts wandered to a common in high summer, near a friend's house at Richmond, to Emily and her blouse and boater, and that song they'd all sung together. Within the musk-rose bower, I watch, pale flower of love for thee. Louse! someone shouted. Merrill turned sharply to see a man, a perfectly ordinary-looking man in a blue sack coat, standing up close before the president and yelling in his face. Louse, he repeated, villain, wrecker. A companion was trying to restrain him. Carlin strode forward to assist, planting a hand on the shouting fellow's chest and gesticulating angrily, ordering him away. Uncle Bob was coloring, huffing something under his breath, outraged on their master's behalf, for Leyland himself seemed entirely unmoved. He was looking across the concourse as if this man in the blue sack coat simply didn't exist. Seeing he would get no response, the assailant barked wrecker for a second time and asked the president loudly if he understood at all what he had done, what he had destroyed. And then he stalked off furiously towards the street. Merrill returned his gaze to the ticket office. Not that slight a chance then, Mr. Carlins, he thought. He wondered what lay behind this little confrontation. There was much talk about Frederick Leyland over at Temple Lane. President of the National Telephone Company, Merrill had learned, was but one of his positions. Leyland was also a major figure in electricity, having a sizable stake in Edison, and a shipbroker with a huge transatlantic fleet. This was the origin of his wealth, in fact, numbering upward of 30 steamers. The very idea of it boggled the mind. It was said that his ambition knew no boundary or scruple, that the shipping company up in Liverpool had been won through the betrayal of his mentor, and he had conducted himself ever since with absolute ruthlessness, leaving a trail of crushed competitors in his wake. And every company director bested in negotiations and loyally manoeuvrings had an operation behind him. Sales merchants and accountants and clerks, each with his wife, his infants, his poorly parents. A lot of livelihoods. A lot of lives. The tickets were purchased distractedly, Merrill almost forgetting to buy first class. It was hardly his habit. Uncle Bob was talking with determination about some subject or other in order to dispel any lingering unpleasantness. The four men started down the central staircase to the platforms. Merrill was regarding Leyland more closely than ever, studying the precise arrangement of the hair above his collar, which had the look of having been trimmed that same morning. A warm, dirty wind gusted up to meet them. The president coughed once more against his hand. Already, Colonel, he remarked to Uncle Bob in his detached manner, I believe you can see quite clearly where the problem lies. They were attracting notice. You couldn't fail to spot it. Leyland was being recognized. Merrill recalled the more salacious rumors that bubbled through the Temple Lane offices, rumors that claimed it was not merely companies their president had wrecked. This was a man with a great appetite for women. As brimming with lust as he was empty of passion, and with the means to make any obstacle to his desires vanish, and unburdened, furthermore, by any guilt or self-reflection upon the matter. He doesn't care who knows about his activities, one especially talkative junior surveyor had confided, equal parts scandalized and impressed, over an after-hours mug of porter. He is perfectly indifferent. Such behavior, the surveyor had continued, 
had naturally added to the number of Leyland's foes. There had been a wife at one point, a beautiful woman, well-liked and decent, who was driven out in the coldest, cruelest fashion. Leyland's essential nature was one that could not help but repel. Over the years, he had suffered vicious ruptures with everyone from his doctor to his decorator. His decorator? That was a while ago now, a dreadful to-do. The plan for his dining room went awry, you see, and they disagreed over the bill. Yankee fellow it was, a Mr. Whistler, friend of the wife's as well. It's said that Leyland threatened to take him out and whip him in the street. Merrill followed Art. It was one of the reasons for his family's concern. You mean James Whistler, the artist? He'd asked. The painter of Nocturnes, who has a show coming at the Goupil Gallery. This had met only with a shrug. The party headed onto the westbound platform. It was filled with city men, standing alone mostly, buried in their newspapers or simply staring at their shoes. The air was yet more turbid than in the concourse. Spherical lamps hung at intervals along the tiled ceiling, but the smoke soaked up their light, obscuring them to the point where the furthest were reduced to fogged, yellowish smears. Weaving between the other passengers, Leyland led them beneath the large, plain clock that hung at the platform's midpoint. Then he went to the edge and beckoned for Uncle Bob to join him. They began pointing down at the tracks, conversing in low, purposeful tones. Carlin stayed in the middle of the platform, monitoring those nearby, a couple of whom were directing sidelong looks at the president. Merrill stood next to him. Train shouldn't be more than a minute or two. The private secretary wasn't listening. You see now, he said, nodding towards Leyland, what this is about. Merrill kept quiet. Electricity, Carlin's enlarged. Or rather, electrification. Mr. Leyland is always thinking of the future. You know of his share in the Edison Company. He sees this line being powered that way and lit that way too. He sees telephones connecting the stations, connecting the platforms and the offices. Vast improvements, Mr. Merrill, vast indeed. Merrill crossed his arms, frowning slightly as if in contemplation. He was impressed, rather to his annoyance, and stung by a sudden and profound sense of inadequacy. He simply could not think in these terms. His grand idea, the sum of his life's ambition, was that he might write for the stage, and that was receding into the distance at a rate of knots. Now he sought chiefly to keep his damned family at bay and escape the censure of Uncle Bob. This long-limbed, black-clad rake, so sinister and ridiculous, had plainly wrought more than his share of harm. But he had vision. It was the only word. Leyland saw the shape of things to come and the practical changes that would affect the progress of cities, of entire nations. There's gold down here, Carlins went on, satisfied by Merrill's reaction in these wretched tunnels. Mr. Leyland perceives it clearly, a rich seam of it. He changed shipping, you know, changed it for good. And now he'll change the underground, make his fortune all over again, I shouldn't wonder. And the boon for London will be incalculable, Merrill added. I mean to say, Mr. Leyland will, well, he will be doing the people of this city an enormous service. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Collins was eyeing him with a certain pity, as if noting a lack. He inclined his grey bowler in acknowledgement. Quite so. A high-pitched whistle sounded off to the right, and light broke around a corner of the tunnel. A few seconds later, the squat, sooty locomotive heaved itself into the station, sending banks of smoke and steam rolling through the still mistiness of the platform. Its wheezing chugs and the prolonged whine of its brakes made any further conversation impossible. Leyland and Uncle Bob stepped back, for a moment reduced to silhouettes. Then Uncle Bob went after one of the leading carriages, following it a few yards along the platform before opening a door for the president. As the juniors hurried up behind them, Merrill noticed the ones stenciled on the carriages' other doors. First class. There was less competition for seats here, most of those out on the platform making for the other, inferior sections of the train. They had a compartment to themselves, unheard of in second or third class at this time on a Monday. Merrill embarked last and took a place on the left, directly inside, facing Carlin's. The furnishings, he noticed, were a little fresher and better made. The upholstered bench seats a few inches further apart. The smell was the same, though. Tobacco ash and gas, and the ever-present smoke. He reached over to close the door. There was a shout from the platform guard and the blast of a pea whistle, and the underground train pulled from the station. Once they were out in the tunnel, Uncle Bob asked Leyland about the City and South London Railway, one of the new, deep-running lines, which had been using electric traction locomotives for over a year. Leyland was disdainful. It was a ramshackle operation, he replied, unreliable and poorly implemented. The generators barely provided sufficient power for the engines. There was nothing left for lighting, or this bout of coughing seemed to catch him unawares. It sounded different constricted as if his throat was tightening. The carriage swayed upon the track. The single gas fitting hissed softly above them. Merrill looked away into the inky sheen of the window, just as the train arrived at Mansion House. The platform here was as busy as the one at Cannon Street. Two well-fed managerial types advanced on their compartment. Collins held the handle, keeping them out, waving them on with his other hand. The gentleman persisted, but the private secretary held firm. Eventually the whistle blew, and with shakes of the head they went aboard elsewhere. Are you well, sir? asked Uncle Bob. Quite well, Leyland answered hoarsely between coughs. It will pass. The train continued westwards. Recovering himself, the president addressed Uncle Bob, sketching the outlines of a new concern that would be able to take full advantage of this opportunity he had detected. Merrill gathered that it would be founded on the Edison Company, which would be bought out, gulped down whole, much as Leyland had done with his shipping firm in Liverpool. Edison can be improved, he said. Expanded. I'm convinced of that. This underground railway will only grow, Colonel, and every last foot of it will require electrification. Uncle Bob was enthusiastic. With Leyland presiding, he said, it would surely work, as with so much in business, the vital elements would be leadership, 
and sheer force of will, and the president possessed both of these in abundance. On and on he went. Merrill began to loathe him a little bit for his sycophancy. Leyland made a sound, as if in interjection, raising one of his bony hands suddenly from his lap. Uncle Bob came to an obedient halt. They all waited patiently to see what comment or insight he might offer. Nothing came. The raised hand began to tremble, Leyland's strange, blank eyes popping wide. Merrill glanced over at Uncle Bob. He was sitting forward, hands on his knees like Ingres, Monsieur Bertin, his ruddy face hidden in the shadow of his hat brim, plainly concerned, yet reluctant to act in case this prompted his master's ire. Leyland spoke very faintly. A squeal of steel from somewhere below drowned out his voice. Pardon me, Mr. Leyland, said Uncle Bob. What was that, sir? I can't breathe, Leyland whispered. Uncle Bob was off his seat at once, propriety and reserve forgotten, reaching for the president's neck, then exclaiming in frustration, tearing the gloves from his hands and buttoning Leyland's overcoat down to the middle of his chest. Carlin's leapt to his feet, and Merrill as well, their hats bumping against the compartment roof, although there was nothing at all that either could do. Beyond Uncle Bob's shoulder, Merrill could see the president pulling feebly at the frills that lined his shirt front, attempting to undo his collar. Leyland managed to inhale, gasping like a man surfacing after a deep dive. He took four more heaving breaths and nodded to Uncle Bob as if to indicate respite. The rest of them relaxed a fraction and were starting to return to their seats when, as one, they realized that the president was tipping slowly to the side, towards the window. Collins lunged in to support him. Leyland's head lolled horribly, the topper falling to the floor. Even in the compartment's weak gaslight, Merrill could see that he was mortally pale. What is this? asked Carlins. The private secretary's cool urbanity was gone. He sounded fearful. Could it, could it be poison? Uncle Bob was looking hard across the carriage, to where the lights of the next station were just coming into view. His heart, he said, as the train left the tunnel. I've seen it before. Elbowing Merrill aside, he went to the door, wrenched down the window, and shouted for assistance, his head passing mere inches from the startled crowd that lined the platform. The train shook to a halt. A noise came from the president, a tiny croak, along with the slightest twitching motion. Uncle Bob went back to him. Carlin stepped away and sat opposite. Merrill stood fixed in place, able only to stare. Merrill, Uncle Bob snapped. He hesitated, then softened his tone. James, come here, lad. Help me lift him out. Leyland was heavy despite his leanness. Merrill stood behind, his arms around the millionaire's frilled chest, the fellow's shoulder blades jutting into his thighs. It took a good deal of concentration to edge him through the doorway without knocking his head, which, without its topper, seemed dreadfully vulnerable and exposed. At the same time, however, Merrill knew that his efforts were merely for show, for there could be little doubt that this was no fainting fit or fleeting ailment. Frederick Leyland was at the point of death, if he had not passed it already. He had no more breath or movement in him. A station guard was there to meet them, drawn over by Uncle Bob's bellows. 
Behind him, a number of other passengers stood in a loose semicircle, all craning necks and questioning eyes. Sight of the president stopped the guard mid-query. He turned and attempted to contain the gathering crowd. This great giant of British business was laid there on the underground platform, parallel to the train, as respectfully as they could manage. Uncle Bob set down the legs, then came to help Merrill with the chest and head. Garlands was standing half out of the carriage, his posture slack, robbed of purpose. The black topper, rather dusty now, hung limply in his hands. The crowd was growing steadily. A fellow lying dead, people were saying, right there by the train. Merrill moved back. Before long, he heard Leyland's name, a shiver of recognition passing through the station, further increasing the interest. They were at Blackfriars. The station was in an open trench, only one level below the street. Its platforms were under cover, but above the trains was the evening sky, the tops of buildings touched with gaslight, and some pools again from the other side, glimpsed through the rising steam. Someone was praying. Uncle Bob knelt by the body to put his ear to the president's breastbone, but heard nothing. Merrill put his hands in his pockets, not knowing what else to do with them. He looked off to the platform's end and found himself imagining a multitude, every enemy living and dead that Leyland had acquired during the course of his extraordinary, cold-hearted existence, filing down the double staircase. This ethereal company walked in procession between the wrought iron pillars and drifting clouds of coal smoke, joining the circle pressing in around the dead man. Few showed any sign of grief. Indeed, most were well satisfied, and a few visibly glad. Others positively frothed with fury, mouthing curses, ready to spit on the hated figure where it lay. There were the shipping partners from Liverpool, whom Leyland had knifed in the back, the ruined competitors, the discarded mistresses, the man in the blue sack coat from Cannon Street Station, the unwanted wife standing quietly dignified, her face behind a veil, even the artist Whistler, who Merrill had once seen caricatured in Vanity Fair, a dapper little Yankee with a monocle and a bamboo cane, peering over with grim curiosity. James, said Uncle Bob. James, we need to fetch a doctor. Merrill blinked. The vision was dispelled. He stared down at the black legs, sticking out so rigidly, the disquieting whiteness of the face. A doctor, he repeated. An examination must be made, Uncle Bob explained, his voice hushed and urgent. A declaration of death before we can have him removed from this place. He pointed towards the exit. Quickly, boy, go. The road outside the station ran between Ludgate Circus and the mouth of Blackfriars Bridge, and was as clogged with people and traffic as any in London. It was bitterly cold as well, a wintry breeze whipping in from the river. Merrill emerged from the concourse and began to work his way onto the packed pavement. He hadn't the faintest idea where a doctor might be found in Blackfriars at that hour. Out there in the rawness of the open air, however, the last of the underground's grimy heat leaving his clothes, he felt only relief. He looked around him a little dizzily, trying to get his bearings. Then he straightened his hat and started off into the city. Blackfriars is a short story of the underground from Matthew Plampin. Matthew Plampin's latest novel, Mrs. Whistler is out on the 3rd of May 2018 and will be available in 
audiobook, hardback, and ebook. You can find the other stories in this collection from the Borough Press on Audible, Kobo, and Apple.